So the, uh, the past few weeks in our time in 2 Peter, Peter has been focusing on this group of false teachers that have infiltrated the churches that he's writing to. And today, we're going to look at the lifestyle of these false teachers. And while the exact identity of the false teachers has just been lost to history, it's believed that they were likely some form of like early Gnostic or Christian Epicurean hybrid. And the idea is that they preached a mutant Christianity that was syncretized to popular viewpoints in their culture. And specifically, they claimed to have a special knowledge that uh, the universe, the physical world was nothing but just a bunch of corrupted matter and it was all going to decay and burn up. So why did it matter how you were living today on this earth? And they also believed that Jesus was not going to return and judge the world. That's something Steve will explore next week. So basically, these false teachers, they took all the parts they liked about Jesus and Christianity and then combined it with all the parts that they liked from the world. They're like, yeah, give me eternal life forgiveness and love, but, you know, let me sleep around a little bit too, just a little bit. And uh, it's relatable though, right? We want the joy, the sense of community and purpose that comes with Christianity, with Jesus, but when it comes down to it, we also want to be able to define for ourselves what is right and wrong for our life. And that's a philosophy that has been Uh, humans have been living by for all of history. And this goes all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden. God places the first man and woman in paradise. And he says to them, you can eat from any tree of the garden. The tree of life is right there. You can eat of it. There's just one tree you cannot eat from, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the fruit of that tree will bring death. So please stay away. It's for your own good. But Eve is tempted by the Spirit and told that when she eats of the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And the implication is that she'll be able to name good and evil. She'll get to decide for herself now. That sounds good to her. So she takes the fruit, thinking that within it contains a life that could be even greater than what God could give her. But instead, what does she get? She gets death. Sin is when we try to generate a blessing on our own terms, thinking that we know better than the creator, thinking that our way will satisfy. But instead, it brings the opposite. It brings curse and it brings death. So this passage that we're going to dive into, it's more than just a warning. It's and unmasking, showing the true reality of the false teacher's behavior and lifestyle. It looks like fun, freedom, and power, but it's not. So Peter first points out how sin has puffed up these false teachers. Verse 10, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, there's a bit of a debate here about whether or not glorious ones is referring to angels or demons, but either way, we know that he's talking about spiritual beings that are far more powerful than humans. They are above us in the created order. And so the main point is that these false teachers were so arrogant that they had no problem mocking beings that could just disintegrate them in a second. But there's more. 
They're blaspheming the created order, and therefore, they are blaspheming the creator himself who ordered all of creation in the first place. The New Testament scholar N.T. Wright put it this way in his commentary on 2 Peter. The point seems to be that at the fountainhead of all rebellion against God, there is a rejection of appropriate authority in which Peter's day emerges as blasphemy against angels. We don't want anyone in authority over us telling us what to do. It's my life. I can be in charge. I can be like God, knowing good and evil. Sin puffs us up so we can do something as brash as mocking an angel. But the angels are wiser. Verse 11, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. So unlike the false teachers and unlike us, angels know their place in creation's order, what they have authority to do and not to do. But Peter shows that sin does far more than puff us up. It also dehumanizes. Verse 12, but these, that's the false teachers, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed. That's pretty intense language from Peter here, calling these people animals. So what, what is going on here? Well, to answer that question, we need to look at the difference between humans and animals. When God created humans, he said in Genesis 1, 26 through 27, let us make man, that's meaning mankind, in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So what separates us from the animal kingdom? We're made in the image of God. Now, what does that mean? It means that everything good about humanity, our intelligence, our ability to create, our capacity for love and relationships, our laughter, our joy, our beauty, and, and so much more is an image, a picture of the excellence of God. And that status confers upon every single human being dignity and worth. That is our reality. No matter who you are, no matter your background or status, you are made in the image of God. But the image of God is not just a reality, it's also a role in which we are called to play. To put it briefly, the image of God means that we were created to reflect him and represent him on this earth. Reflecting means that we are called to look like him in everything we say and do, reflecting his heart, his character, his aims. And we do that as we represent him on this earth, as we rule on his behalf. Let them have dominion for all the earth. And this is royal language. God appointing humans as governors or viceroys ruling on his behalf. And a good representative rules like their king, right? And how does God rule? He brings order out of chaos. He brings beauty, abundance, all creation, all life thrives under his care. That's how we are to rule and work, partnering with God to fill the earth 
with his glory. Now, in contrast, what are animals like? Peter describes them as irrational and creatures of instinct. The Greek term for irrational literally means without words, but it goes beyond a lack of speech. It refers to a lack of reasoning capacity. Animals, they're not pondering the deep things of life, right? A deer in the woods is not, what does this all mean? They're just not doing that. Animals aren't concerned about whether or not they are reflecting the heart of their creator. And that's fine. That's not their job. Their thoughts just consist of food, food. I need food. I need a mate. Food, danger. Like that, That's all they're focused on. That's, that's how God created them. Then the second phrase Peter uses, creatures of instinct, refers to the fact that animals can only follow their natural instincts. No lion is going to wake up and just decide to be vegan because of health reasons. If you put something bloody in front of it, it's going to eat it, right? They follow their impulses, sometimes even to their own detriment because of the programming in their DNA. It's stronger than the reasoning capacity that they have. So to bring it all together now, Peter is looking at these false teachers and saying, instead of partnering with the creator and living out your God-given purpose to represent and reflect him, you've decided to live like a beast, just following your instincts and desires. They're rejecting what it means to be human, rejecting what separates us from the animals. You see, sin dehumanizes us. And that's not to say that those who are caught in sin Uh, are less than human, right? If that were the case, we'd all be in trouble. But what sin does is that it keeps us from living like how God designed us to be. We're still made in the image of God. We're just not acting like it. And this is best illustrated in a literal way by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, who in a moment of just particularly outrageous self-glorification, which is saying something for him, He gets cursed by God for seven years. Daniel 4.32, God says to him, and you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And so immediately King Nebi just loses his mind and it says, he was driven from among the men, that's the image bearers, and ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. It's a vivid picture of how sin corrupts, debases, and strips us of what makes us human. Adam and Eve, they didn't rule well for long. Genesis 3.1, a beast appears says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, wait a second. Animals are supposed to be without words, right? Without reason. And what does this creature do? Talk. And he's crafty, it says. He has reasoning. Now, this can't be good. He tells the woman... God has lied to her. 
that she can become like God. And, and as we talked about earlier, she then takes the fruit, thinking that it'll bring a blessing, thinking it will bring life, even though God said it will bring death. And Adam takes the fruit and he eats too. And in that moment, they both rejected the king's authority and they rejected the mission to image God. Instead of ruling over the serpent, a beast, they were ruled by it. So back to 2 Peter 2. He writes in verse 12 that these false teachers who are dehumanizing themselves with their sin are born to be caught and destroyed. In this phrase, it's referring to an animal that is hunted and killed. That's just how the animal kingdom works, right? And he's saying these false teachers, they want to live like they're an animal. They're going to be caught by a predator real quick. And it will be a predator of their own making. The end of verse 12 says that they will be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. Again, whenever we try grabbing blessing on our own terms, we end up grabbing death instead. Now, Peter's not done yet. He's gonna show now how sin consumes. And what I mean by that is, uh, how sin turns us into consumers, these animal-like creatures who are just unendingly driven by our urges, consuming pleasure and consuming others. Verse 13, they, that's the false teachers, count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. This is the main motivator of their lives, pleasure. And they have no shame about it. They do it in the daytime. But it gets worse. They were co-opting the Lord's Supper as a means for more pleasure-seeking. The word feast here in this verse mentioned is known at, uh, in the early church as a love feast. The early church would have these big meals that accompanied the taking of the Lord's Supper. But these false teachers, they took the love feast and turned them into drunken parties. It's a lot like what Paul had to deal with in the Corinthian church. And along those lines, Peter then describes three big desires that the false teachers pursued with creaturely compulsion, sex, power, and money. Now, the problem is not those three things in and of themselves. They're actually gifts from God. But all three are like fire in the sense that they can be used for good, but they are also incredibly potent and dangerous. And if you don't treat them with safety precautions, you are going to get burned. The problem, 1 John 2 says, is the lust of those things, the deep desire for them, for just more. And look at the news headlines today. Look at the story of humanity. Honestly, we don't handle those three things very well. So the first desire Peter mentions is sexual pleasure. Second Peter 2, 14. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. It's a fun little poetic construction here by Peter. Full of adultery and yet insatiable for sin. You have so much and yet you can never have enough. And that's the tale of sexual sin, is it not? Especially in our digital age with the prevalence of pornography. Never before in history have humans had access to so many naked bodies, and yet we're never satisfied, always insatiable. We're the loneliest, most anxious generation. 
And the phrase eyes of adultery in the Greek is literally eyes full of an adulteress. The idea is that these people are always looking for a potential mistress. In their eyes, every woman they come across exists for their possible sexual pleasure. And this is where we see that sin doesn't just dehumanize ourselves, but it has the potential to dehumanize others as well. Instead of treating our fellow image bearers as people full of dignity, value, and worth, lust objectifies the person. You dehumanize them into merely an object for your consumption. Their beauty, their body exists for you. It belongs to you is what you're saying, even if it is just with your eyes. It's predatory behavior. And again and again, we are seeing it destroy lives. And the next desire Peter mentions is power. They entice unsteady souls. This term entice, it's a hunting and fishing term used to talk about luring out your prey with a piece of enticing bait. You're using the animal's cravings against them. The false teachers here, they were hunting for unsteady souls, those who were weak and vulnerable. We read later in verse 18 that their targets were specifically recent converts from paganism. It says, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They had just gotten out of paganism. They were so young in their faith, they didn't even know how to separate truth from error. And so then these false teachers come along and they tell them, you can be a Christian and still live the same pagan lifestyle you've been living. It's an enticing Message. I can have Jesus and my pet sins, my desires. And all the while, they don't even realize they are being gathered by the false teachers to bolster their own following, increase their bank accounts, and give them the influence they crave. And that's ultimately what sinful power, abusive power does. It's the will and ability to use others to accomplish our purposes. It's dehumanizing people again, this time by acting like others exist to serve our whims. Instead of reflecting God in the use of their power by serving the vulnerable, they use the vulnerable. And all too often, if someone with the will to power can't manipulate people with their words, they do it through strength, intimidation, and even violence. Then the third desire Peter mentions is the desire for money. He says, they have hearts trained in greed. Now, greed is one of those sins that usually gets a pass in the church. I mean, when was the last time you heard about someone getting church discipline for greed? Not stealing, greed. No, right? And yet, when you look in the Bible, greed, in the same Greek term can be also translated as covetousness, Greed is treated as a deadly serious thing. In the New Testament, when you look at the different passages that has those lists of sins that you really shouldn't do, greed is tucked right in there next to murder and adultery, sexual immorality, drunkenness, and idolatry. Money is especially alluring because it's a means to more power and more pleasure. And it's Really, really sneaky how our hearts can get caught up in greed. Peter uses the phrase, hearts trained in greed. That word trained is where we get the English word gymnasium. It's a picture of extreme 
discipline. Someone who is training is constantly building up habits, creating a whole pattern of life that reinforces what they value all in pursuit of a goal. And now, often we don't even realize the small and subtle things that we do that can even unknowingly train us in greed. Our habits and thought patterns shape our hearts, our desires, and our affections. And thoughts just like, if I had more, if I just had a little bit more, then I'd be okay, then I'd be secure. It's the apps we use, the accounts we follow, and then before we know it, our mood changes with the ups and downs of the stock market or gas prices, and then we decide need to be that generous because it can mean I don't get to go on that vacation or I can't go those, get those new countertops. Are our habits and thought patterns forming in us a heart of contentment and thankfulness and generosity or something else? Peter now summarizes what he said so far with an analogy from the Old Testament, verses 15 through 16. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These false teachers, were they following the way of Christ? No, they had forsaken the way, he says. Now they followed the way of Balaam. They were his disciples now. Now, who's Balaam? You can read about him in the book of Numbers, chapters 22 through 24. And the short version of the story is that the king of Moab, Balak, knows he he can't defeat Israel in battle. So he reaches out to this famous sorcerer, Balaam, for help. He wants Balaam to curse the Israelites. And Balaam was someone who is seen to be able to discern, and even manipulate the will of the gods through incantations and sacrifices. It was about getting the gods to submit to his way. And people would come from all around the region to pay him really well and, uh, so that they could get a blessing from him and, and probably curse their enemies. It doesn't quite sound like God's vision for humanity. So Balaam He hops on a donkey to ride out and meet King Balak. And while he's traveling down the road, the angel of the Lord blocks his path with a drawn sword. But Balaam can't see the angel. Only the donkey can. The donkey turns to the side and veers off the path. So Balaam beats the donkey, trying to force her back to the road. And then suddenly, the Lord causes the donkey to talk. The donkey's like, why are you hitting me? You big jerk. And that's when Balaam finally sees the angel and realizes that, oh, God's not happy with me. So he eventually goes on and he blesses Israel instead. Okay, so Peter, what is going on here? Why'd you bring up Balaam? Well, just like the false prophets Peter is dealing with, Balaam claimed to have a secret divine connection and access that only he could give you. For a reasonable price, of course. But what happened to Balaam? Peter says, a speechless donkey spoke with human voice. He was rebuked by a donkey. And this word speechless, it's supposed to make us think about the word irrational that Peter used earlier, irrational animal. 
The donkey was an irrational, speechless beast without reason. And Balaam, the human, he was the one who's supposed to be spiritually perceptive, Mr. Rich and Famous Prophet. But what happens? Because Balaam decided to live in a way that rejected the created order, God uses a beast to rebuke him. The donkey, the animal in that moment is teaching Balaam about what it means to be human. The created order, once again, is just all mixed up because of human rebellion. Peter then continues to further describe just how dangerous the false teachers truly are. Their message is dangerous because sin enslaves. And slavery, of course, is one of the most dehumanizing things that can happen to a person. Verses 18 through 19. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. So what's the freedom the false teachers are promising here? Freedom from rules, from constraint and moderation, from the final judgment. Freedom to do whatever you please, whatever you choose, because it's about your happiness, your pleasure, your fulfillment, your self-realization. And in the West, that's basically how we've seen and valued the idea of freedom. It's the motto of our land. Former Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy put it this way, central to the idea of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence. You are free to decide your own path. But the irony is that just like the false teachers and their followers, we are becoming enslaved because of our own flawed views of freedom. We think we're grabbing blessing, but it's bringing destruction. And all you have to do is look around to see it, right? As a society right now, we are captive to anxiety and despair. Just think about the rise in suicide, the mental health crisis, the prevalence of loneliness, the opioid epidemic. We are captive to outrage, grievance, and fear thanks to cable news, social media, podcasts, and political ideologies. We are captive to distraction and numbness where thanks to the almighty algorithm, we can't even go to the bathroom without taking our phones with us or stand in the grocery line or sit in traffic. Please do not do that while you're driving. We actually aren't free with our attention and how we spend our time compulsively just picking up our phones and checking apps and social media feeds. Oh, just one more YouTube video. Oh, did I get an email? Look at that Instagram ad. Just pulls us in. And then, of course, there are the addictions that truly overcome us, such as alcohol, drugs, and pornography. And if you're caught in that spiral, you know it's enslavement. And if that's one of you, I want you to know we have resources and groups that can help you get out. Contact one of our pastors like Ian, Steve, Matt, or Ryan, and we will get you the help you need. You don't have to go through that alone. You can't go through that alone. The world promises freedom, but that way brings enslavement. Peter then concludes in verses 20 through 22, for if 
After they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire. He's saying that these teachers are extra accountable now because they had heard the gospel. They had heard the teachings of Jesus through the apostles and yet they still decided to go their own way. And Peter, he ends this passage with another mention of animals. This time dogs and pigs, two animals that were seen as despised by the ancient Jews. Sorry to all the dog people out there. The dog returns to its vomit and the pig will still roll in the mud. Creatures are gonna follow their instincts and false teachers are slaves to theirs. That's the end of the passage. (laughs) It's a bit of a downer, so I want to talk a bit beyond and look at the solution. How can we escape the enslaving and dehumanizing effects of sin? We're made in the image of God, but it's been marred by sin. We need help to free us from our slavery, recover what has been lost. Jesus said in John 8, 34, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. But wait, verse 36. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And this is freedom from enslavement of sin, but it's also freedom to something. Freedom to finally live how we were created to live, to partner with God as image bearers, to follow the way of Christ, to the way of true life. Jesus is everything we're looking for. Augustine wrote, you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Jesus offers the life we keep trying to grab on our own. We who are dehumanized by our own actions, we need to look to Jesus, who is the perfect embodiment of the image of God. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3, he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He's the perfect picture of what it means to be human, how God intended us to be, partnering with him, ruling and reigning with him, perfectly reflecting him. It's why Jesus constantly called himself the son of man. 1 Corinthians 15.45, Paul calls him the last Adam. He's the true and better Adam, the one who didn't fail when the serpent came to him and tempted him in the wilderness. He didn't try and grab blessing for himself on his own terms, but said to the father on his way to the cross, not my will, but yours be done. And here's the even better news. Jesus is not just our example of how to live. Sorry. But because he is God, there we go. Yes, he is. 
He is God. He is the source of life itself. Ephesians 2, 45. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. If we trust that Jesus died for our sins and that God raised him from the dead to give us new life, and if we declare him our Lord and our King, then he promises to restore us, to restore that image of God in us, and that image will look like Christ. Romans 8, 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Let's walk in the freedom that Christ brings and reflect God wherever we go.